As we turn to hear from God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with reverence and humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin helps us do just that. Let's read it together. All people are like grass. All their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. This morning's scripture reading is taken from Psalm 28. In the Blue Pew Bible, it can be found on page 475. Again, the text is Psalm 28, found on page 475 of the Pew Bibles. Hear from the word of the Lord from the book of Psalms. To you, Lord, I call. You are my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who go down to the pit. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands towards your most holy place. Do not drag me away from with the, weak, with the wicked, with those who do evil, who speak cordially with their neighbors but harbor malice in their hearts. Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done and bring back to them what they deserve because they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord and what his hands have done. He will tear them down and never build them up again. Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song I praise him. The Lord is a strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Amen. Thank you so much, Lydia. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, this morning we cry out to you asking for your Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out, to transform us into the likeness of your Son, that we might be his hands and his feet, that we might be his embrace that we might be his words of wisdom and hope, uh, words of love, Father, that we might follow in his footsteps, footsteps to the cross, um, that we might lay down our lives for your perfect and beautiful purposes. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, Sarah and I have been reading through uh, a book called The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. It's, uh, it's actually an autobiography, and Frederick Douglass, if you, some of you know from history, was a slave, uh, lived in the um, first half, more or less the first half of the 19th century. He was a slave in Maryland, and uh, he tells that the, the majority of the narrative is about his escape uh, from, uh, from slavery. And he, uh, he grows, he was born a slave, he grows up um, to about, escapes around, I want to say around 20, 21 years of age. And, and as he's recounting his life as a teenager, as a slave, he, he, there are just a number of, of very poignant uh, stories. But one in particular is where he tells of a transition that he makes from an old master to a new master. And this is what he says. Another advantage I gained from my new master was that he made no pretensions to or no profession of religion. Did you get that? Hey, a great advantage to being to my new master is that he wasn't religious. 
And then he says, and this, in my opinion, was truly a great advantage. Listen to this. He says, I assert most unhesitatingly that the religion of the South is a mere covering for the most horrid crimes. A justifier of the most appalling barbarity, a sanctifier of the most hateful frauds, and a dark shelter under which the darkest, foulest, grossest, and most infernal deeds of slaveholders find the strongest protection. Were I to again, he's writing as a free man now, were I, were I to be again reduced to the chains of slavery, next to that enslavement, I should regard being the slave of a religious master the greatest calamity that could ever befall me. For of all slaveholders with whom I have ever met, the religious slaveholders are the worst. Isn't that amazing? In fact, he speaks of two, goes on to speak of two slaveholding ministers. Okay? And he describes them. He says, he says two, two men, Mr. Hopkins and Mr. Whedon. He says, Mr. Mr. Hopkins was even worse than Mr. Whedon. His chief boast was his ability to manage slaves. The peculiar feature of his government was of that of whipping slaves in advance of deserving it. He always managed to have one or more of his slaves to whip every Monday morning. He did this to alarm their fears and to strike terror into those who escaped. His plan was to whip for the smallest offenses to prevent the commission of larger ones. Mr. Hopkins could always find some excuse for whipping a slave. Now think about that. Think of the word minister and the word master. What is a minister? What does it actually mean? To minister means to serve. And to be a master while being a minister is a complete contradiction. Right? As, we, as we listen, as you, and in fact, as Sarah, I've been reading the book, I mean, our hearts just, I mean, our stomachs just turn. Right? There's something so disgusting so disgusting about hypocrisy, about those who claim to be religious, who claim to be Christians. In fact, often hypocrisy just makes us want to hurl. Let me ask a question. Why does the church, or why do Christians struggle with hypocrisy? It's really important. Think about this for a second. Why is it that that Christianity struggles, the church struggles with this thing called hypocrisy. Why can't we get it right? Why can't we stop? Why can't we just void of hypocrisy, right? Well, think about it this way. What is the church supposed to be? Have you ever thought about that? What, what are Christians supposed to be? What is the church supposed to be? Are we to be like a bar, right? Think about going to a bar. You go to a bar and everyone's welcome, right? Those of you who used to watch Cheers, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name, and they're always, come on, glad you came. Thank you, Leah. Guys, someone watches Cheers. I'm not that old, right? They're always glad you came. There's not a church like a bar. Hey, come on in. Grab a drink. We're so good to see you, right? And some churches are like that. In fact, I had a pastor friend of mine who uh, had a particular ministry, and he came to the church, this new church, and he said, you know what? What's amazing about our church is everyone is welcome. We have every, everyone in the, t- in the town shows up. And he says, but no one's changing. There's grace, tons of grace, right? And as much as we might feel befriended at a bar, as much as we might feel favored at a bar, how many of you come out of a bar feeling fit? Ah, that, was, that was a good workout. 
right? Woo, all right? Now, right? There's something that, so maybe the church is more like a gym, right? See, at a bar, everyone's welcome, but at a gym, everyone's what? They're all working out. They're, 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 they're growing. There's, there's growth. In fact, I even know churches like this, too. In fact, I used to minister at a church. It was called, and again, it was a, it was a great church in many ways, so I'm just, but, but they themselves, self-admittedly, self-aware, the leadership, that there came a point, I don't know where this happened, the genesis of this was, but the church was called the Church of the Good Shepherd, so similar to ours, but the Church of the Good Shepherd, and it became known, however, in its community as the Church of the Good Looking. Right? Show up to church, and everyone's fit, everyone looks good, got it together, right? And so, are you really, is it, is it, are you really welcome? And who can actually, who can, who, can, who can actually be a member there? How good do you have to be? And so, yes, on the one hand, there was growth, but was there grace? And so, if the church is not like a bar, if it's not like a gym, what is it supposed to be? And this is really important as we consider Psalm 28. Well, listen to the words of Jesus. If you have your pew Bible here, just real quick, go to Luke to the New Testament. It's really, I love Jesus' metaphors that he uses, so beautiful, so simple. In Luke chapter 5, this is on page 884 of your pew Bible, if you want to follow. You don't have to, you can just listen along. But there's this beautiful scene where uh, Jesus uh, um, walks right up to this man named Levi, also called Matthew. We know the Gospel of Matthew, same guy. He walks up to, to Levi, who is a tax collector, and he says, follow me. And sure enough, you know, Levi just gets up, leaves everything, follows him. And then that night, uh, that night, verses verse 29, again, page 884, chapter 5, verse 29, we read that, Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Kind of interesting, right? It's almost kind of bar-like in some ways. Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have, no, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So what was the, what's the metaphor that Jesus uses? It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. If Jesus is the doctor and his followers are the sick, that means the church is neither a bar nor a gym, but class? A hospital. Aha! Right? A hospital. Think about it. In a hospital, who's welcome? Everyone, right? And yet, what's the expectation? <laughs> You're sick. And you want to get better. Now, that may sound simple. But how many of you have a doctor? You could probably give me the name of your doctor. But you will do anything before going to the doctor. Right? In fact, if you talk to people in the medical profession, they will tell you, they will complain to you, give them enough time, they will complain to you about how discouraging their practice can be. Why? Because patients come in, they complain of, of their issues, and, wh and what does a doctor do? Gives them a treatment, tells them what to do, and what happens? They don't do it. So do they, does, a, does a patient want to get better? Well, they want to, but just not that much, <laughs> right? Right? Not that much. In fact, sometimes when, you know, you guys, oh, you know Jesse Meyer, Jesse is a, um, 
um, a, uh, what do you call them, a uh, physical therapist, physical therapist, and uh, she would tell you of her patients, and you know, the, the, the challenges there of, here's, someone comes in, they're, hopefully they've been in an accident, something like that, and hey, listen, I can help you walk again, you can walk without that limp, right, do you want to do that? Yes, well, here, do these exercises. I'm good, <laughs> right? It's this question of, so that the church is not a bar, it's a gym, it's a hospital, and all are welcome, but all are expected to want to get well and even help others get well. But what happens, listen to this, this is what Psalm 28 is about, what happens when they don't want to get well? See, from day one, God's people were supposed to be a hospital. We find you see it in the opening chapters of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I am going to bless you. I am to give you life. I'm going to show you mercy. And the reason that I'm going to do that, Abraham, is what? The reason I'm going to bless you is so that you might be a blessing to the nations. Got that? You're blessed in order to be a blessing. I'm showing you mercy so that you might in turn show mercy. I'm giving you life so that you, yourself, might be a conduit for life. The idea is simple, that God has made a difference in our world so that we can then go make a difference in his world. God's people are to be a community of both grace, like the bar, and growth, like the gym, but together to be a hospital. And just like from day one God's people were supposed to be a hospital, from day one God's people have struggled with this idea of hypocrisy. Do you see now why the church struggles with hypocrisy? We're actually called to be different. And being different, if you hadn't noticed, is really, really difficult. That making sense? So can we have some compassion for why the church might struggle with hypocrisy? We're not making light of it. We're not saying it's okay. But it's easy to criticize the church. Oh, those churches are full of a bunch of hypocrites. Well, you go to a bar and say, hey, listen, how many of you are trying to live differently in here in this bar? It's just be yourself and do whatever you want. And so, of course, everyone's welcome. But when you're actually trying to grow to be different, it creates a dynamic of either it's exclusive, like a gym. So how do you be all-embracing and yet ever-desiring change, ever-changing? That's the challenge of the church. And it leads to this question. It leads to this question. What do we do with hypocrisy? So many have looked at the hypocrisy in the church and just walked out. They've left. Or they've judged. They've seen themselves as better. Well, at least I'm not like that person. What does David do? When David looks at the widespread hypocrisy of his day, what does he do? And that's what we'll look at here in Psalm, Psalm 28. And, and listen, behind all of this question is a deeper question that maybe you ask from time to time. Am I a hypocrite? Am I really a Christian? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, am I, am I for real? Right? In those moments of sobriety, of when you look in the mirror, those moments deep down, Am I going to make it? Am I too compromised? Am I too, too much hidden? Too much underneath? The, the, uh, too much water underneath the bridge? Too much just gone by? I don't have what it takes. No passion, no desire. Am I a fraud? Am I a fake? 
Well, again, let's look at Psalm 28 here. Let's, let's hear this, brief, this. This is a brief outline. This kind of summarizes what, what he's going to say here, and then we'll kind of break it apart in greater depth here. First, the first two verses, I think this is so interesting. He says, hear me. He cries out to God. He prays in the face of hypocrisy. David says to God, hear me. And, we'll, and we, wonder, we wonder, why does he have to ask that? Why does he, why is he, what is he, why does he think that God might ignore him? So first he says, hear me. It's the first two verses. Then he says, help me. In verses 3 through 5. Help me. He says, rescue me, rescue me and repay them. We'll get into that. And then he says, hallelujah. He, he, believe, he truly believes that God has heard his prayer. Hear me, help me, hallelujah. And then he closes with a final prayer. Help us all. Got that? Hear me, help me, hallelujah. And then help us all. Okay, so let's jump in. First, he said, in the first couple of verses, he says, hear me. Verse 1, the first half of verse 1, he says, To you, O Lord, I call. You are my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. David prays, God, please don't give me the cold shoulder. Right? Why is David worried that God will ignore him? I mean, this is David, right? I mean, it's King David. And yet, if you've ever read about David's life, you might know why there's reason why God might ignore him. In fact, do you ever worry that God will ignore you? You think, yeah, he's not going to listen to this. Why? Why do, what does our worry say about us? What does David's worry that God won't hear him say about him? What does it say about what you and I, deep down, what we really know about ourselves? That maybe, maybe we don't deserve to be heard. In fact, the text, it's the Hebrew is a little interesting. The text could be translated, do not turn a deaf ear because of me. Right? Don't be silent because of me. In other words, when you, when you think about who I am, you, you might just want to, you know, turn a deaf ear. So David prays in verse 2. Look at what he says in verse 2. Hear my cry for mercy. It's literally, it says, hear my, cry, my, my, my plea for grace. I, and so he says, he, he holds out his hands in desperation. I lift up my hands toward your holy place. He, he holds out his hands in desperation to the most holy place where he finds what? What's in the most holy place? Those of you, you know the Old Testament a little bit. There's the, there's the, there's the what was the tabernacle and the temple, right? And in the tabernacle, you've got these, you have two rooms. You have the, the holy place, and then you have the most holy place. And what's inside the most holy place, among other things? The ark. Right? And the ark was the symbol of God's kingship. And the cover, the top of the ark, was what? It was called the mercy seat. Isn't that amazing? It's called the mercy seat. It's the place where God the king reigned. And it was called a place, a seat of mercy. He's holding out his hands to the, to, to the holy place, longing for God to show mercy to him. In fact, in some ways, David is like a kid in class. I mean, think about this, kids. If you, if you think about this, those of you in elementary school, and you can remember back, you're so this kid in class who's misbehaved, and the teacher is kind of ignoring him. And suddenly the teacher, the, sorry, the student who's misbehaved wants to get the teacher's attention. And he's like, oh, 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 right? It's, 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 it's so earnest, right? Won't stop endlessly ho hoping that God will hear him. Because the teacher has no reason, ready to tune out, because he's been in such, such, so much trouble. In fact, I can remember in grade school, we had a, it was one of those days we had a substitute teacher. What's the, what's, the, what's the phrase that all the students say about a substitute teacher? Sink the, 
sync the sub. Come on, you didn't know this. Am I the only one who knows that? Sync the sub, right? You know? Okay, well, I was only the troublemaker, I guess. Anyway, so we, there would be a substitute, and all the guys would be like, kids would be like, yeah, time to sync the sub. And, and literally that day, we gave the substitute teacher hell. It was awful. And I, I didn't, I wasn't the worst one, but I didn't object, right? I went along, I was complicit, right? I went along with it, and then by the recess that afternoon, just by, you know, God's, you know, miraculous intervention, a f- few of us students, like me and like two or three others, were like, wow, we've been terrible. And we began to feel bad. And, like, and then we asked the guys, like, like, is it too late for us? <laughs> Right? Can we still change, you know? And we, we actually got together. We went up to the teacher and apologized, the poor guy. And, uh, and we, we apologized. But that's, that's, that's David here. David is recognizing that as much as he sees hypocrisy, he's really not much different. In fact, he might not be different at all. He says, please consider me. Consider my plea for favor. But do, do, do you notice to whom he prays? To whom does he pray? Look in verse 1 again. What does he say? To, to, to you, O oh Lord, I call, you are my rock. You're my fortress, my rock. He says, consider me. I know I'm a sinner, but consider what I'm up to say. Hear me. Consider me, you who are constant. That's what it means, that God is the rock. Those of you in junior high, high school, you can remember back to your, your or maybe, maybe think back to those days, and you can think about taking math class, especially basic geometry, Right? And there were these things called constants. Remember those? So in geometry, there's something called pi. How many of you guys know what pi is? Who can remember what the number of the pi is? 3.14. Keep going. 1.5. Oh, my goodness. Look at this. Guys, <laughs> I, I thought there might be some pi experts here. Right? So as you go into that geometry test that you're, that you're not ready for, that you didn't study enough for, whatever variables there may be, x, y, z, you know that there's this thing that is constant. It's pi. It's unchanging. Whatever uncertainties there may be in this test called life, there's this one constant. Okay? And David cries out to him, you're my constant. Everything else is iffy. All of life is undecided. It's unsolved. You may get it wrong. In this thing called life, there's one rock. How many of you know the song, um, Abide With Me? Second verse, right? Swift to its close, ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. Isn't that beautiful? And the older it gets, that's so true. Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Right? I've been thinking about, I've been watching, Sarah and I went to the movie, um, you know, No Time to Die recently, watching the James Bond movie, having a great time. And I've been, you know, of course, Daniel Craig is everywhere in the news right now, the actor who plays James Bond. And he realized in a few months, five, six, 12 months, guess what? He won't be in the news anymore. They'll be looking, in fact, they're already asking, who's the next James Bond going to be? In fact, Daniel Craig's already old news. Does that make sense? I mean, it's just earth's joys, it's glories, they just pass away so quickly. There's so much change, so much decay. And David is saying here, I'm crying out to the one who is constant. 
He's a constant. I want you to hear this. He's a constant in, last, in at least three ways. If you tune out the rest of the sermon, it's fine. Hear these three things. Our God is constant in three ways, at least three ways. First, he's always correct. He's always correct. You never have to go, oh, I don't know, is that right? Did God get that right? He's always correct. Think about that. I hope that makes you want to read his word. Think about it. You have a book on your shelf. There's nothing false about it whatsoever. It is perfectly true. He's always correct. He's never wrong. Okay, second, he's constant in that he's always committed. He's, if, his, if his words are always true, meaning he's correct, he's always true to his word. He's always committed. He's never random, unpredictable. He is all in. His purposes will stand. I don't know about you, maybe if he, the fact that he's correct makes you want to read his word, the fact that he's, that he's, that he's uh, committed, doesn't that make you want to jump on board? Doesn't that make you want to say, you know what, I'm going to live for him. I am all in. His purposes will stand. All my money, all my time, all my relationships, I'm in. There is no, as the proverb says, there is no wisdom, there is no plan. There is, uh, there is no wisdom, no plan, no insight that, that can succeed against the Lord. So being constant means that he's always correct. He's always committed. And beautifully, he's always clear. He's clear. He's, he's candid. There's never any sort of a guile. There's no artfulness. There's no passive-aggressive nature with God. What you see is what you get. Isn't that wonderful? His word is always like that. So David says, Consider my plea for favor, O constant one. And then he says, Did you notice that in verse 1? Or else, what's going to happen? Look in verse 1 again. To you, O Lord, I call you my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who go down to the pit. Literally, it's I will go down to the cistern. It doesn't translate as well. Do you know what a cistern is? A cistern, especially when it's empty. It's like this, this pit, narrow, usually narrow, fairly narrow pit. The bottom of it, it's just muddy. And it's gross. And you imagine trying to be at the bottom of that. You're stuck in it. It's, it's gross. You can imagine mosquitoes. I mean, it's just miserable. And, guess, and the worst thing about it is there is absolutely no way to get out. You're in too deep. It's over. And so this, and this notion of going down to the pit, David is saying, listen, it's a, uh, if, if, if you don't help me, I'll, I'll be in a place of no return. In fact, the metaphor of that phrase, going down to the pit, became a metaphor for death, for dying, for being condemned. It's like our word today, the grave. Well, grandma's in the grave, or whatever it may be. In the graves, it's this place of no return, a place of silence, a place of condemnation. Consider me, O constant one, or I'll be condemned. Okay? And it leads to this key question. In and of himself, is David really any different from the hypocrites around him? That's a key question in life, gang. It really is. As you get older, you will either become convinced that you are better than some people, that you are different than a lot of people, or, or you will become convinced that you are no better, that in and of yourself, you're no better. In and of yourself, you're no different. That any difference there is, that any way that you might be better, is simply a result of his grace. And I tell you, it just makes a, makes a world of difference in marriage. It makes a world of difference in family. It's huge. 
Marriages that die are marriages in which one or both parties are convinced that they are better, way better than the other person. That they are just different. Okay? So in the face of hypocrisy, David first prays, hear me, hear me. And then he prays, look at verses 3 through 5, he prays, help me. First he says, rescue me, and then he says, repay, repay them. Rescue me, repay them, verse 3 and verse 4. His cry for help is twofold. Again, in verse 3, rescue me. Do not drag me away with the wicked. Okay, and here, now, listen, the word wicked, it's a very hard word to translate. Wicked just means kind of like, well, that's bad. Here, wicked refers to those who have made a promise or who have said that they will commit and then back out. Got that? It refers to those who pretend to be committed. And he actually goes on to say, Do not drag me away with wicked with those who do evil, who speak cordially with their neighbors, but harbor malice in their hearts. Right? There's some seriously passive-aggressive behavior going on here. Right? Those who are cordial, who are sweet, who are kind, nice, polite, and will stab you in the back. Does it make sense? David is saying, rescue me. He says, he knows that God one day, if you, listen, if you hate hypocrisy, God hates it way more. And David knows that one day God will call out, he will bring to judgment those whose lives are, are marred, are governed by that hypocrisy. And David is saying, I don't deserve anything different, so please don't drag me away with them. David deserves the same fate, but he desires to be different. Okay, so let me say this again. The wicked in the Old Testament are those who pretend to be committed, but aren't. All right, and the verse gives an example. They're kind with their words, but they could care less in their hearts. Okay, and again, I just think this is very close to home. A lot of Christians that you talk to, they're polite, they're nice. They know what to say. Hey, how you doing? You know, they kind of show up on Sunday morning, nice, whatever. And you know, they're just not committed. They're just not in. They're not interested. Right? It's, it's one of the most difficult things about being a minister. In fact, I just, this past week, a friend of mine called me up and just said, hey, um, you know, this family, and again, this is, this is just, this is not some terrible thing, but it was just really hard for him. I mean, he said, you know, there's this family in our church, they've been there a long time, there are a couple who said to us, you know, we're going to be here forever, we're going to grow old together, our families, our, your kids are going to grow up, we're going to each other's weddings, we just love you guys, we're committed to this church. Then out of nowhere, they just decided, hey, just let it know, we're visiting other churches, we're going to go somewhere else. And is it wrong to go to another church? No! Not at all. It's just good shepherds, not for everyone. This church, you know, whatever. It's like, but, but to actually make these promises, to actually say, hey, we're all in, and then out of nowhere, inexplicably, to just peace out. You can see, after a while, he's like, yeah, I just don't know. I don't, I just don't really trust anyone. I don't trust any of my congregants. I don't know why. I mean, they're all just kind of nice. They're cordial, but at the end of the day, they're going to do whatever they want to. So he sees, he rec- David recognizes a world in which God's people are cordial, they're nice, they're polite, but their hearts aren't in it. And I wanna, it makes me want to ask a question. What does it mean to be fake? So I want to have a real clarity here. I want you to understand the difference between being a Christian and failing, which is absolutely okay, and being a Christian and being a fake and a fraud. 
So let's, let's ask that question. How do we, we become fake when we refuse to do four things. We become fake when we refuse to own up. When we refuse to confess sin. Right? There's nothing more difficult than talking to someone and taking that risk to say, hey, I think, I think you're struggling here. And they just, a wall goes right up. No way. There's an absolute refusal. Or maybe there might be some, some really, what's, what do you call it? Some really poor, half-baked sort of apology. Hey, sorry for not being perfect. Right? We become frauds when we refuse to own up. Let me ask you, when's the last time you confessed your sin? Is it an ongoing thing in your life? Our homes are the places of just regular, ongoing confession. Losing control of your reputation. And again, husbands, fathers, listen, that is where, that's what it means to lead in the home. To be the first to confess our sin. I remember talking to a woman a number of years ago. She was a pastor's wife. She was a pastor's daughter, a pastor, you know, a PK, a pastor kid. And she was, she was on the, uh, the mission field as, as a kid, and she said, you know, Bruce, I saw so much hypocrisy amongst the missionaries and the people, the Christians that I knew. There was, there was only one thing that kept me from walking away from it all. My dad regularly confessed his sin to us, to his wife and, and kids. That made Christianity real to me. Listen, I hope, parents, I hope your kids remember your obedience. I do. I really do. It's powerful when we obey. It's amazing. It's moving. We obey under difficult, uh, hard circumstances, wherever it may be. But they will definitely remember your confession. I promise you, they will remember your words of confession. So we become fake when we refuse to own up. Second, when we refuse to follow through. When we say we're going to do something, we just don't do it. Right? I'm going to make vows to a church but not follow through. I'm going to make vows to my wife and not follow through. I'm going to make, make commitments and I'm not going to follow through. Third, we refuse to grow up. There's a sense of stagnation. One of the most terrifying things that leads to a fake Christian is they confuse the length of time they've become a Christian. They've been a Christian. I've been a Christian now for 30 years. They confuse the length of time with the notion that because you've been a Christian that long, it somehow makes you more mature. Does that make sense? You can be a Christian for 30 years and still be an infant and be fake and a fraud. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 5, it's very sobering. If I just turn this really quick, in Hebrews chapter 5, the, the author actually says this very thing to, the, uh, to, to his audience. Let me turn there myself. I'll tell you what page it's on. Chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 5, which is on page uh, 1035. Listen to these words. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. We have much to say about this, verse 11, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you you no longer try to understand. In fact, though, though by this time you ought to be teachers, You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Let me ask you, in your Christian life, have you confused longevity with maturity? Longevity with maturity. 
So we become fake when we refuse to own up, when we refuse to follow through, when we refuse to grow up. And finally, when we refuse to be all in. To be all in. Are you all in, Christian, in the sense of, see, here's the thing. The temptation to become a Christian is that you engage in what's called selective obedience. There's certain things I'm going to do, certain things I'm not going to do. I'll, I'll go to church regularly. Giving? Nope. Yeah? I'll, um, you know, I'll, uh, I'll read my Bible, but I'm going to change my habit patterns of how I, my mouth, my, my, my cursing, my, my anger? Nope. You become selective. And listen, you can fail in all of those areas. You can fail in all of them repeatedly, but you've got to be able to say, listen, I am going to try in this area, no kidding. I'm going to get back up, dust myself off, and try. So we become fake when we refuse to own up, when we refuse to follow through, when we refuse to grow up, and we refuse to be all in. So, so David said, he begs, he says, rescue me. Do not drag me with the wicked. Then he says, repay them. Look at verse 4. Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done and bring back on them what they deserve. David is saying, listen, I'm not going to be the judge. I'm not going to mete out justice. I'm asking, though, that you would. And just as they are fake, treat them in the same way. Just as they don't follow through, don't follow through with them. I can elaborate on that. But then, verse, listen, how does he do that? How does, David, how does God go about doing what David asks? How does he go about repaying them? He tells us in verse 5. Listen to this. I think this is so powerful. He says, Because they have no regard for the, de- the deeds of the Lord and what his hands have done, he will tear them down and never build them up again. How does God repay them? How does God eventually deal with frauds? He tears them down and never rebuilds them again. How many of you remember from the news this past, uh, this past year, it was in the late June time frame, there was a condominium in, uh, in Florida that collapsed. You remember this? 98 people died. In fact, there were a number of warning signs. Various engineers, injuring firms actually said, time out, this is not okay. There, is, there, are, there were fundamental issues with the integrity, the, the, the structural integrity of this building that need to be addressed. And they weren't, because it was so costly. Okay, and then in the middle, in the middle of the night, at 1.25 a.m., half the building just simply collapsed. What do you do with a building that has such deep, fundamental stru- uh, issues of structural integrity? What do you do? You tear it down. Read verse 5 again. Because they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord and what he has done, he will tear them down and never build them up again. And I can tell you guys, I don't mean to be heavy here, I can tell you story after story after story of congregants that I have known where that exact thing has happened. I think of a, of a, Christ, a Christian man who was in a very difficult marriage. His wife was a very difficult person. I'm not trying to minimize the situation. But he decided to have an affair with his, uh, his um, secretary. And he was much younger, fun, loved what he did, liked him. So he decides, he, he decides that he's going to divorce his wife and marry this girl, and after getting married, ask God for forgiveness. Right? And he does it. He does it. Divorces her, new woman, things are great. Well, just by God's, you know, mysterious providence, this young lady whom he marries, within like five or eight years of, of their wedding, she develops MS. Debilitating. 
And what do you think he does? You want to be married to that? So he divorces her. And to this day, that man, I can tell you, that man is no longer walking with the Lord. And I'm not judging it. I'm grieving it. Okay? I'm grieving. I'm saying that his life, his life was a fraud. And God in time tore it down. Just recently, I was talking to a pastor seeking counsel, and he was talking about a woman in his church who was an adult woman. She was a daughter, and she wanted to talk to her dad, who was a professing Christian. She wanted to talk to her dad about his alcohol use. But her dad absolutely refused to even come near the issue. And he would just get, if you broached the issue with him, he would just get really angry. And the, woman, the woman's mom was there enabling the whole thing, refusing to address anything, refused to rock the boat, would say it's a disease, which we can talk about the complexities of that, but it would insist that, that her daughter just leave, leave him alone. He was totally inaccessible. Totally, uh, 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 totally um, uh, it's out of the question that we would ever consider talking about that. And there, there, that's it. That's the end of the story. And he's, he's dying of his, of his, alcohol, his, his alcoholism. Because they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord and what his hands have done, he will tear them down and never rebuild them again. So David says, help me. He says, hear me. He says, help me. And then he believes. Look at verse 6. He believes that God has heard him. He says, hallelujah. Verse 6. I love how he says this here. Let me turn, make sure I'm there. <clears throat> he says in verse 6, Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. Do you see that in verse 2? Back in verse 3, he says, hear my cry for mercy. And then in verse 6, he says, praise be to the Lord. Hallelujah. He has heard my cry for mercy. And then he celebrates God as a, as a strength and shield. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my, and with my song, I praise him. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. This is probably one of the few places in the Psalms where anointed one refers not to a king or to a specific person, but to God's people, that they themselves are anointed. They themselves have a special calling in this world to be a hospital. And he says that, they are, that, that God is a strength and a fortress for them. And then he concludes asking for more help, not just help for him, but help for us all. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. He asks for deliverance, save your people, and he asks for direction. David realizes that if this thing called the church is ever going to fly, it's only going to happen through divine miracle. And so he says, save all of us, rescue all of us. David doesn't enter, he doesn't conclude in a place of, of superiority. I'm just so much better. He concludes his place of inclusion saying, save all of us, rescue all of us, deliver us, and direct us in the way that we should go. Listen, I hope that the church at times may seem very small, very meager, very unimpressive, very hypocritical at times. But Jesus has said, this is his rock, and upon it he will build his church. You know, there was no greater time, I don't think, that the church was more hypocritical than in Jesus' day. And Jesus didn't give up on the church. He challenged it. He warned it. And yet he died. He went all in for the church, for people like you and me, for frauds, for failures like you and me. And I want to ask you this morning, 
Are you living the kind of Christian life that you would like? Where is he calling you out of that living in a fake way toward living in a greater fidelity, greater beauty, greater constancy? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you, are, you indeed are a constant. You are the one who does not change. You are always merciful, always mighty, always working your ways. Father, you are the one who stands over all, seeing our hearts, knowing and, 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 and knowing our struggles, knowing our failures. Father, there is no one like you. And so we, this morning we ask that you would renew, you rekindle within us a longing to serve you, to know you, to walk humbly before you. Father, free us to confess our sins, to own up. Father, free us to follow through. Give us that strength to follow through as spouses, as parents, as members of a church. Father, as uh, brothers and sisters, Father, free us to follow through. And Father, I pray to you that you would help us to grow. Father, I think especially the men in this church, Lord, as we think about uh, beginning a a new men's discipleship ministry, Father, there are going to be so many challenges, so many obstacles. Father, the evil one does not want these men meeting together to pray for each other, to grow in a knowledge of your word, to become humble, uh, strong leaders in their homes. So, Father, I pray that you would deliver them from the evil one who will use any means necessary, struggles at home, struggles at work, all kinds of things to keep them from coming. Lord, I pray for the men of this church that they would rise up and that they would defy the wiles of the evil one and serve you and give themselves fully to you. Father, I pray indeed that finally that we would be all in. That, Father, to free us, show us the ways in which we engage in a selective obedience. And, Father, may you show us the beauty, the liberty, the joy of a full submission to you. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.